Advisory pay offer covers further cuts as NHS privatisation reaches new heights. National Clapping and a George Cross have left nurses empty-handed as a new health chief helps US profiteers move in. On the 28th of July, it was announced that Amanda Pritchard will be the new head of the NHS in England. She has in fact been its chief operating officer under Sir, now Lord, Simon Stevens, the infamous chief executive who occupied the role for the last decade, although keeping a low profile during the Covid pandemic, and has failed to take any accountability for its gross mishandling, including burying the findings of the 2006 pandemic planning exercise, Operation Cygnus, which highlighted our health service's lack of preparedness for a serious respiratory viral pandemic. Amanda Pritchard, the continuity candidate for privatisation. The press were unanimous, perhaps predictably, in hailing her appointment as a groundbreaking move for increased equality. It will go down in history as it is the first time a woman has been given the title after the role of Chief Executive in the NHS in England was first created in 1985. Opined the evening standards, Lily Waddle, breathlessly. The Telegraph described Miss Pritchard as the continuity candidate, pointing out that she has worked closely with outgoing and former leaders, including Sir Simon Stevens, Prime Ministers David Cameron and Boris Johnson, Health Secretaries Jeremy Hunt and Matt Hancock, and infamous profiteer Dido Harding. Quote, Sajid Javid, the Health Secretary, said Miss Pritchard would bring a steady hand to the NHS and health service managers described Mrs Pritchard as the continuity candidate who would hit the ground running. End quote. It was, of course, Sir Simon who led the massive expansion of the Private Finance Initiative, or PFI, under Tony Blair. The policy that introduced the largest debt burden into NHS now parcelled up into separate trusts, each working on a business model, and that debt in turn used to leverage further restructuring and reform. Sir Simon then took the revolving door, also championed by Blair's new labour, into the private sector, leaving to work for the largest US health insurance firm in the USA, latterly as president of its global health division, which has the stated aim of opening up international markets, and particularly of targeting the public health sector in Europe. This behemoth private health insurance firm had an annual turnover in 2020 of $257.1 billion, more than twice the budget of the NHS. US-based health insurance firms receive huge funding streams from governments and also dominate the provision of private insurance-based medical care, often linked in the US to employment status. The Health Management Organization, or HMO, system introduced by President Richard Nixon's administration in the 1970s, introduced a perverse incentive into the heart of its system. The less healthcare is delivered, the greater the profits of the company. Bringing HMO organisations to Britain on behalf of US capital. Today in the US, fully one third of all health spending goes directly to creating corporate profits. This is why the US health system is the most expensive and the least effective in the world, delivering poorer health outcomes than its tiny Caribbean neighbour, Cuba. Once you've paid your monthly fee, Zero Medical Care provides the HMO with the maximum profit, remarked Dr David Gans, an internist in Beverly Hills, California. To enrol with a HMO, you have to believe that everyone in it is so noble that all they care about is wonderful healthcare. If you've given up believing in that and the Easter Bunny, you have to believe that a HMO has an incentive not to provide healthcare. Conversely, the purely private health system finds that the maximisation of profit pushes in another direction. A doctor in private practice is like a toll booth operator. Every time you enter his office, you toss him more coins. 
His incentive is to over-treat a patient, since the more he does, the more he earns. But for now, most people, it seems, would rather live with too much care than too little. Both tendencies have been exhibiting their vile forms in the USA, with lawsuits for unnecessary heart operations on the one hand, and 70 million denied any meaningful access to care during the COVID pandemic on the other. The fact that the USA has had some of the worst pandemic health outcomes, with 36 million proven cases and more than 630,000 deaths, is in itself indicative of the inequality and chaos that reigns in the US health sector. But the enormous profits generated by the system have their own logic and never cease to push towards expansion. Such corporations have the ability to draw the brightest Oxford graduates into their orbit and manipulate the democratic process in order to achieve their ends. So what better way for Sir Simon, close personal friend of key figures in Britain's government, to achieve United Health's expansionist goal, to introduce the HMO organisation into Britain, than to return and serve for a further decade as a chief executive of NHS England, the quango that now directs an enormous £159 billion budget. Miss Pritchard herself said in a statement, I am honoured to lead the NHS, particularly as the first woman chief executive of an organisation whose staff are more than three quarters female. I have always been incredibly proud to work in the health service, but never so more than over the last 18 months as nurses, doctors, therapists, paramedics, pharmacists, porters, cleaners and other staff have responded so magnificently to the COVID pandemic. Starving the workforce to feed the profiteers all of which stands in glaring contradiction to the headlines that followed the 21st of July's announcement that public sector workers, with the exception of those in the health service, would receive a pay freeze this year, effectively pushing their wages down in real terms. NHS workers are now being offered a 3% rise, after an initial offer of 1% was roundly rejected. But this itself remains frankly insulting, given that inflation currently sits around 2.5% and is set to keep rising. They're being told that there is a shortage of public funds owing to the immense costs arising from the COVID-19 pandemic. Nurses have been campaigning for a 15% pay rise, with even the Conservative Royal College of Nursing demanding 12.5%, so as to bring them back to the kind of living wage the profession commanded before a decade of austerity cuts. The fury at the derisory offer was further compounded by the realisation that the government proposed to fund a pay offer out of the existing NHS budget, the Times, meanwhile, claims to have been informed that much of that extra 2% is likely to be funded from an increase in national insurance that was intended to pay for overhauling social care. Jenny McGee, one of the nurses who looked after Johnson when he was hospitalised with Covid soon after the pandemic struck in March last year, resigned in May, citing the 1% offer as a key factor. We are not getting the respect and now pay that we deserve. I'm just sick of it, so I've handed in my resignation said McGee. Official at One Health Union said that a 3% award would be difficult for unions such as the British Medical Association, Royal College of Nursing and Unison, which have been pressing for a bigger rise, adding, 3% may be high enough to dissuade unions from taking industrial action, because enough of their members might accept it, especially with the law now requiring unions to get at least a 50% turnout in any ballot for industrial action, and 40% of members to agree to take action. The RCN looks likely to reject 3% as too little. Its branch in Scotland has already turned down the 4% pay rise offered by the Scottish Government and last month triggered the first stage of a disputes process which could see nurses going on strike. This from the article NHS staff in England could be offered 3% pay rise by Dennis Campbell 
in The Guardian, 20th of July 2021. Of course, a modest one-off wealth tax of Britain's super-rich could more than cover such necessary costs without pauperising a soul. But capitalism would not be capitalism if such solutions were applied. No, the solution will, as ever, be sought by piling the debt onto the backs of workers. Looting of the Treasury goes hand in hand with starving our services of resources. Much of the debt accrued under emergency Covid legislation has been awarded in a highly corrupt and totally ineffectual manner. The disorganised farce of so-called track and trace, for example, will forever be remembered not for its effectiveness in containing the virus, but for its speedy transfer of vast quantities of public money into the hands of pharmaceutical companies, management consultants, logistics companies and other government cronies. Let's not forget Matt Hancock and his publican, his sister and his brother-in-law. The efforts of David Cameron on behalf of Lex Greensill, the billions entrusted to Oxford hedge fund manager chums like Dido Harding and Kate Bingham to splash on their corporate friends. Besides this lavish spending, the pay rises need to support those who actually deliver our care pale into insignificance. Siva Ananda Siva, chief analyst at the King's Fund, said that every 1% rise would cost the Treasury between 340 million and 500 million a year. Meanwhile, the nauseating beatification of NHS workers as heroes, of leading the nation in applause for their efforts, and finally of awarding the entire NHS to George Cross, is just so much sand to throw in the eyes of a public who are blissfully unaware of the abuse being heaped on the health services staff. Kate Mimi wrote, As an NHS nurse, I do not want to be clapped for. All I want is for people to stick to the guidelines and for the government to raise wages for nurses. A number of people who commented described the clapping as a hollow gesture and instead called on a public campaign for fair play for nurses. In addition, several people raised concern about the use of the term hero. Vicky Bintley wrote, We aren't heroes or brave. We are educated professionals with careers in nursing. Kirsty Hill said they believed hero was a dangerous term because it implied invincibility. We are not invincible. And when we do say we're struggling, we're not believed, added Kirsty. The attack on the NHS does not stop at the reduction in pay and conditions of its staff, nor does it rest with the devastating underfunding and downgrading of the service. All of this is being carried out in conjunction with the new government white paper on health, which seeks to merge GP clinical commissioning groups with other health and social care providers, under the leadership of private sector providers. The introduction of these clinical networks will entrench Optum, United Health and Operos, Centene, giant US for-profit health insurers, at the centre of administrating NHS budgets and as the major players in the rollout of NHS planning and clinical delivery. These are the British versions of the HMO organisation that has been so discredited in the USA. No wonder that the demands of the NHS workers and British working class are being ignored, for there is a broad and sinister coalition of interests, from huge capitalist firms their Tory backers, the media and the Labour shadow cabinet. Together, even with compliant NHS campaign groups that look to the Labour Party for direction, ranged against them. Doctors Bob Gill and Ranjit Bra are two of the few campaigners who have raised their voices in serious and meaningful opposition to the cuts and privatisation in NHS, and who have consistently joined the dots between different strands of policy. Health Secretary Sajid Javid said that the raising of the government's initial 1% offer to 3% was in recognition of NHS workers' extraordinary efforts during the pandemic, but the workers themselves point out that this still represents a real-term pay cut of £200 per month for an experienced nurse 
and their unions are promising a summer of industrial action. Unfortunately, as is so often the case, some union leaders are already being led to believe that their initial demands are unreasonable or unrealistic. The horse trading is underway, but the argument that is being pushed, as ever, to the fore is, where is any pay increase going to come from? It is usual for the Treasury to cover the cost of public sector wage deals, but this time the government is putting the squeeze on the NHS to fund the rise out of its already insufficient budget, meaning in effect that any slight pay uplift will in fact constitute a further cut to NHS funding. While the NHS budget keeps increasing, the percentage that goes to frontline care is steadily diminishing, and has been fundamentally compromised by corporate penetration with the private parasites sucking huge profits from operational budgets to the serious detriment of patient care across the board. Does that mean we are faced with choosing between curbing the NHS wage offer and maintaining present funding levels to our struggling services? That is certainly what our rulers would like us to believe. They are doing everything possible to make the public feel resentment at the greed of hard-working NHS staff, despite repeatedly praising them as heroes during the last year. I want us to forget that more than a decade of real terms pay cuts has left many health workers in real difficulties. That single parent nurses have been known to struggle so much that they were forced to use food banks. A question of priorities. A civilised society, one that puts the interests of its working people, the real wealth creators, above the interests of the profits of its financial capitalists, would not need to choose between paying people properly and providing decent services. Britain certainly never seems to be short of funds when the super-rich sponges hold out their begging bowls. Whether after the banking collapse and bailout of 2008, or the Covid stock market collapse and bailout of 2020. It is not a question of lack of resources, but of priorities. As a society, are we focused on the needs of people, or the needs of corporations? Unfortunately, while the capitalist class remains in charge of a capitalist economy and state, the needs of the corporations will always come first. Campaigns to oppose cuts and austerity generally, to reverse the steady decline in pay and living conditions, and to renationalise our dismembered NHS are desperately needed. While the working class remains fragmented and disorganised, our rulers feel confident in pushing forward their own agenda, safe in the assurance that we can muster no meaningful opposition. Moreover, the Labour Party continues to form a useful safety valve, with MPs who make vague noises about reform but who fail concretely to hold our government or the ruling class to account, or educate the workers about the real causes of their poverty. Moreover, their constant drive to take over, divert and stifle meaningful opposition from the working class has prevented any mass popular opposition making its voice heard. The only way to push back against the drive to maximise corporate profits is for workers to organise themselves in large numbers to resist and fight for their own interests. Following George Galloway's historic result in Batley and Spen, the Workers' Party of Britain offers the opportunity to give a radical voice to the urgent needs of the working class. Mm-hmm.